scripture reading tonight will be from Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. As we talked about this morning, we have begun a sermon series for the next couple of weeks on the book of Romans. And in the mornings, we're going to be talking about Romans 4, 5, and 6. And then in the evenings, starting tonight, we'll, go, we'll be talking about Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. There's a method to my madness. Don't worry, you don't need to know what the method is, but it's there. We're going to talk this evening about Romans chapter 1. So if you don't have your Bible already open there, go ahead and open to that particular passage. I appreciate Rocky reading a good portion of Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23 for us this evening. Let's talk about what's in this chapter and why people need the gospel. Why do people need the gospel? You know, we don't really like to think about the things that are found here in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. It's, it's ugly. I mean, it starts with the wrath of God. Who wants to talk and think a lot about that? Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And it continues talking about how people have turned away from God, they've rejected Him, and they've turned to idols. And then it concludes with a just a, a downright vile picture of so many different kinds of sin, starting with about verse 26 and going through verse 32. This is a chapter that is full of unrighteousness and ungodliness and sin. And one of the questions that if we're reading this, we ought to ask is, why is this particular passage here? And I think that's important for us to address as we get, get started this evening talking about this particular section. I want you to notice in the first place that Paul is being criticized. He was criticized because Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was the one that was sent to preach to these pagans, these Gentiles in places like Corinth and Athens and Ephesus. Paul went to those places and preached to those Gentiles. And a lot of the Jews who were enthusiastic about obeying God's word. They were enthusiastic about doing good. They would criticize Paul and say, Paul, don't you know the kind of people that those Gentiles are? Don't you know what, what they do? Don't you know the kinds of practices that they have? But notice if you will, in Romans chapter one and verse 13, Paul speaks about preaching to the Gentiles, again in verse 14, uh, debtor to the Greeks and barbarians. And then again in verse 16, the gospel is God's power unto salvation for all who believe, the Jew first and also the Greek or the Gentile. So Paul is answering, how can I go preach to these people? Why would I preach the gospel to these people? It's because they're lost and because they need salvation. But secondly, this passage is here because there's an evangelistic emphasis. 
In Romans 1, 16 and 17, the Bible tells us that the gospel is God's power unto salvation and the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. You see that in verse 17? God's righteousness is revealed. Paul went preaching the gospel because he was an evangelist. He had good news to share with people and he went to people that were subject to God's wrath. Notice in verse 17, God's righteousness is revealed and in verse 18, God's wrath is revealed. That's important. As you read Romans chapter one, verses 18 through 32, this helps us to be sensitive as evangelists. If you want to talk to the people in your neighborhood, at your work, if you want to talk to your friends who are not believers about the gospel, it would help if you would stop and think about why people have done what they've done with their lives. And there is no better diagnostic passage anywhere in the Bible than what you read right here. Why are people lost? Why do people turn to sin and to hedonism? And why do people become downright enthusiastic about doing evil? Why do those things happen? This passage helps to answer. Incidentally, it's not making excuses for people living this way. I want you just to look at Romans chapter one, look at verse 20. They are without excuse, Paul says. In Romans 1 verse 22, he says, they are fools, people who have rejected God and turned to idols, they are living foolish lives. And then again, in verse 29, the Bible says, they are filled with all unrighteousness. Paul is not pulling any punches, he's not sugarcoating anything, but he wants us to understand there are reasons why people turn from God, there are reasons why they turn to evil and why they live their lives the way they do. And then Paul wants us thirdly, as we think about why this passage is here, he wants us to understand more about the wrath of God. Look at verse 18 very carefully. The wrath of God against all ungodliness and unrighteousness has been revealed from heaven, the Bible says. Notice that God's wrath is the dominating idea of this particular passage. God wants us to understand he's angry about sin. And when God is angry, the Bible describes it as a divine wrath. It's the wrath of God. The Bible describes it as a holy wrath. It's revealed from heaven. Heaven is a place of purity, of holiness. God's wrath is revealed from heaven. It's a holy wrath. It's a reasonable wrath as well. It is revealed against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness. Somebody has said ungodliness has to do with our vertical relationship, our sins against God, and unrighteousness may have more to do with our horizontal relationship, the way we treat others. But God is upset, he's angry, his wrath cannot be, cannot be appeased. And that's why Paul is going to preach the gospel, because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The New Testament doesn't just talk about God being a God of love and a God of mercy. Those things are true. And the Bible tells us those things are true. But the New Testament also speaks about things like this. It speaks about a fearful expectation of fiery indignation. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 27. The Bible speaks about how God's wrath is going to come in flaming fire at the last day, taking vengeance on all those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. God is a God of wrath, and there is a day in which God's wrath is going to be poured out in its fullness upon all unrighteousness. 
And because that's true, Paul says, I have to preach the gospel. I've got to warn people. I've got to tell people who are living their lives in these sinful, wicked ways that they're without excuse, that they are fools by what they're doing, and that they are filled with unrighteousness and they ought to repent. And as you look at Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, what you find are four reasons in our society, in our day, four reasons why we ought to preach the gospel. Four reasons why people ought to and need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's sometimes easy to kind of assume that the people around us are happy the way they are and we know they're lost and we know they're living wicked lifestyles and we just kind of assume, you know, let's just leave, leave well enough alone and let's, you know, maybe somebody is going to have a spark or an interest in heavenly things and spiritual things. Let's, let's engage with them, but let's not worry about proclaiming the good news. And by the way, part of the good news is the bad news that you read about here in Romans chapter one. Let's not worry about proclaiming that to anybody. Paul says, that is not my policy as an evangelist. God is angry with sin. He is angry with those who commit sin and people need to be warned. This is why they need the gospel. Both then and now, four reasons why you and I ought to be zealous about proclaiming the good news to those around us and why we need it ourselves. Here we go. Number one, as you look at Romans chapter one, I want you to notice verses 19 through 21. Why do people need the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because they have turned away from God. They have turned away from God. There is a God, he is alive. And these people, it says in verse 18, are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Notice that expression there in verse 18. They have turned away from God. They are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Now, the question is, in verse 18, what is the truth that's being spoken about here? The content specifically is, these people have turned away from God. He's talking about pagan Gentiles living 2,000 years ago. They have turned away from God and from a knowledge that there even is a God. And it's not that there's not evidence. He's going to talk about that in just a moment. But they are saying... We don't want to worship the God of Israel. We don't want to worship the God who created all things. We're going to turn to something else. And the Bible says they are suppressing the truth. The word suppress has to do with holding down, kind of like, you know, when, anyway, when my brother and I used to fight in the, in the swimming pool or when we used to wrestle in the swimming pool, you know, holding your brother underneath the water just a little bit longer than maybe you should, that's suppressing. And the idea with, with the truth is you, you suppress the truth. We're holding the truth down by the unrighteous lives that we're living. The idea that Paul's communicating is that sin has an effect on people. Sin will help us to suppress that which we don't want to see. The psalmist writes in Psalm 14, verse one, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And this truth that there is a God and he did create all things is being suppressed. Now, notice what he goes on to say in verse 19 and 20. He says, this is unexcusable, inexcusable. And the reason is because God's divine power and deity are readily evident. Look again at verse 20. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. They are understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and my translation has Godhead. The word is deity, his Godhood, that which makes him God, so that they are without excuse, it says in verse 20. Here's what the Bible is saying. God is invisible. 
You can't see God. He is spirit. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth, Jesus said. John chapter 4, verse 24. When Jesus came to this world, the Bible says Jesus became the image, the visible expression of the invisible God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. The God that we serve is invisible. We can't see him. But there are some things that you can see. In verse 20, it describes the creation and it says, the creation should show you, should indicate to you two things about God. You can know by looking at the trees and by the order of creation, by the variety and the diversity of what's been made, by looking at the complexity of things like the human eye, you can look at what's been created. You can look at the stars and the moon and and the order of the galaxies and you can know two things. Number one, there is a God and he is powerful. You see that in verse 20? His divine power. I don't know what this God is like. I don't know if he's a God of love or a God of wrath or a God of mercy or any of those things, but I know by looking at what's around me that he is a God of power because I don't know any human being that ever made a star. I don't know any human being that ever made a complex uh, organ like a human eye. Only a divine power can do that. And I know this as well. I know that he is divine. He's not human, he's divine. His divine power and his godhood or his deity. Said another way, creation doesn't show people everything about God. You need the Bible to know everything about God or everything that you can know about God. God's revealed to us so much more about himself in the pages of scripture. You don't know everything about God from looking at creation, but you do know some things. And the passage is saying that people that reject the knowledge and the idea that there is a God and I ought to pursue him, they are without excuse. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 19 verses one through four, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows his handiwork. In Psalm eight verses three and four, the psalmist wrote, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? God wants us to understand that he has given us evidence that he exists, that he is alive. And notice what the people do in verse 21. The Bible says, although they knew God, they understood that there is a God, they did not glorify him, they were not thankful, they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Why do people need the gospel? You can mark this down in your notes if you like. The gospel reminds people of truths that they already should know. It reminds people of fundamental foundational truths like there is a God, you're living in his world and you're going to give an account to him on the final day. Many people wanna suppress that truth, they don't wanna deny it, they wanna turn to something else. People need to hear the gospel because it reminds us of some fundamental truths. And this, by the way, is an apologetic argument. Christian evidences, evidences of things like the the nature that we see around us and how it declares God's glory. That's part of the gospel, the good message. Secondly, why do people need to hear the gospel? As you continue in this passage, in verses 21 through 25, the Bible says that people have turned to idols. We don't tend to think in our society, in our culture, that we are idolatrous, but the Bible says otherwise. The Bible says either 
you are worshiping and adoring the God of heaven or you are by definition an idolater of some kind. There is no door number three. Either you worship God and you serve him and you give your life to him or you are worshiping and serving something else. It may be money, it may be food, it may be fame, it may be power, but you're worshiping something else. You have turned your life over to idols. Now, 2,000 years ago, it was very tangible. What the people 2,000 years ago did was they turned their lives over to wooden statues that were covered with gold or images of you know, flying things or images of the sun and the moon or whatever it was. And even today, some people give their lives to those things. But listen to the argument that's being made here, these people that have turned to idols. Once you say no to God and once you suppress the idea that there is a God and I need to serve him and seek him and find out what's going on with him and what he wants from me, I'm gonna turn my life over to something else. There are twin refusals in this passage. These people who wanna suppress the truth about God's existence, they refuse to honor God and they refuse to give thanks to God. You see those things? They're refusing to honor God and they're refusing to give thanks to God. I'm not going to acknowledge the God of heaven. If I'm not going to do that, I have to say yes to something else. I just get to choose what that's going to be. There are twin exchanges that take place. In verse 23, they exchange or change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. They're taking this invisible divine being that obviously must have created all this because, you know, we didn't do this. They're taking this, this, this image in, and they're, they're converting it into and changing it into created things. And they're taking wood that grows in the forest and they're shaping it into an idol and they're bowing down to it and saying, I, I need your help. I need you to, to help me, oh idol. They're exchanging the glory of God for created things. And notice in verse 25, the Bible says as well, they are exchanging the truth about God for a lie. They're exchanging things when they turn to idols. And there are twin effects that take place as a result of this. Effect number one is this, the people that do this, they think they're wise, but they are fools. Verse 22, Paul minces no words. He pulls no punches. People that turn their lives over to an idol of any kind are fools for so doing. And secondly, they become corrupt and they become immoral. You can mark this down if you'd like to in your notes. When we think about why people need the gospel, People who turn away from God inevitably start to become corrupt and immoral in their behavior and lives, inevitably. Because when we turn our lives away from God, when we decide that God's not important and I'm not going to serve him and I'm not gonna seek him out, when we become enthusiastic about something other than God, sooner or later, we're gonna start doing what sin causes us to do. Sin takes us and makes, makes us see people differently. Did you know that? Sin will cause you to see people around you as obstacles or vehicles. That's what sin does. All sin does that. People are either obstacles, they're in my way, and I got to run over them, I got to push them out of the way, I got to get rid of them somehow. They're an obstacle for me to get what I want, or they become vehicles for me to use to get what I want. 
That's why we become immoral when we turn away from God because we don't see people as being made in the image of God and we don't see them as valuable and see them as souls that need redemption and that are loved by God and loved by us, therefore. God wants us to understand when people turn their lives over to idols, nothing good comes from that. I find it fascinating when I read the gospels and when I read, when I read especially in the book of Acts, I find it fascinating that one of the things that people did when they went to new communities, when Paul and, and Peter and others, when they went to new places, they would always kind of, just, just watch for this as you read the book of Acts, they would always kind of look around and look at the idols in the places where they went. For example, in Acts 17, most famously, Paul goes to Athens and he walks around the city and he sees that the whole city is given over to idols and they noticed what idols were being worshiped in that community. And when Paul starts to preach in Acts chapter 17, he says, I was walking around and I saw that you're very religious people and I saw this altar to an unknown, unknown God and I wanna proclaim that God to you. I wanna talk to you about that one, the one that you missed or the one that you don't, uh, don't think about, the one that maybe you've suppressed the truth about in unrighteousness. I believe as evangelists, if we really wanna make a difference with people, one of the things we need to do is we need to take a look at the idols that people are worshiping. We need to think about what it is that really gets people fired up. You, you wanna know what somebody's idol is? Easiest way to know what somebody's idol is. What do you have nightmares about? What is it that it, in, your, in your heart of hearts, what is it that would really devastate you if you lost it, if you didn't have that anymore? What is it that, that as you wake up in a, in a cold sweat in the middle of the night because you're so afraid that something's gonna happen, what is it that, that causes you to do that? You identify the answer to that question, you found somebody's idol. And it may be a number of things, it could be anything. Good things can be idols. As evangelists, we need to appreciate people who worship idols, who serve idols, they need the gospel. They need to know that those idols are never gonna deliver, they're never gonna save, they're never gonna help them. They have become foolish and futile in their thoughts and they need to have their eyes opened by the good news, the message about Jesus Christ and his gospel. Third, why do people need the gospel? Verses 26 and 27, as a part of this discussion, bring up the issue of homosexuality. People dishonor their bodies. I'm gonna read the two verses. There is no plainer passage anywhere in the Bible than this to describe that God thinks of this behavior of this practice as sin. Listen to what the Bible says in verse 26, Romans 1. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. People would talk to Paul and they would say things, you know, his Jewish brethren, they would say, Paul, why are you going and preaching to the Gentiles? Don't you know that this behavior is frequent among them? Don't you know this is the lifestyle they're living? Don't you know that, that these people are immoral and they're corrupt and, and this is one of the evidences of it? That was the argument. And Paul's saying, I know exactly what's happening. They need to hear the gospel. They need to know God's word. Notice if you would in this particular passage what's happening. In the first place, it's worthy of note that the word man and woman in Greek are not actually found here. What actually are found are more unusual terms in Greek, male and female. 
Males with males, females with females. Again, to emphasize the gender and the way people are abusing their bodies. And I want you to notice in this passage that it describes this behavior with three terms that are an indictment. It's, it's God saying, this is, this is inappropriate, this is wrong, this is sin. It is dishonorable, verse 26. This is not what your body was created by God for. It is unnatural. Verses 26 and 27 both mention natural relations, that which is obvious based on your biology. This is the way that God intended you to use your body. And it's unnatural what's being done. And it's disgraceful, verse 27. Three terms being used by God by divine inspiration to help us to understand how God views this particular kind of behavior. I want you to notice as well, male and female, God assumes, he presumes, brothers and sisters and friends, this is important for our society, for our time. Gender is not something that gets assigned and reassigned at various times throughout our lives. Gender is something that is inherent in our biology. It's inherent in the way that God created us and the way that we were born. And in order to take our biological bodies and use them in a way that God never designed us for is sin. That's what's being said here in this passage. And I wanna take just a minute just to talk about some objections because when you look at verses 26 and 27, these are incredibly straightforward, incredibly plain passages. It's hard to misunderstand what's being condemned here. But there are people well-meaning people, I think, who try to explain this away in the context of what's happening in our country around us. And so there are three arguments that are made that say, basically, you know, Paul doesn't really mean what it looks like he means here. He doesn't really mean that all homosexual behavior is wrong. Here are the three arguments and very quick responses. In the first place, some have taken this passage and said, you know, this only pertains to quote unquote, naturally heterosexual people. The assumption, the presumption being that homosexuality is something that is in our genes and that we are born with this and, and that there's nothing we can do to change it. But if someone who is a heterosexual by their genetics decided to be, behave in a homosexual way, well, that would be sin for them. The problem with that, among other things, is that there's no such distinction that's made here. He, when he says against nature, that which is unnatural, he's not talking about people that, that feel like they are heterosexual but behave in homosexual ways. He's not saying that. He's saying people that live their lives this way, period, are committing sin. They are doing that which is dishonorable. A second objection that people make is they say this only pertains to abusive behavior. That is, if you go back to Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19, those, those men, they wanted to know, you know, the angels that had gone into Lot's house. And it was an abusive type of situation. And there are people that argue that it's not the homosexuality that's wrong, it's the abuse. It's not a loving relationship, it's one person taking advantage or a group of people taking advantage of someone else in a violent way or an abusive way. And that's what God condemns, again. Look at the passage, look at the text in verse 27. Men having a nat uh, burning in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful. He's not making that distinction in verse 27 or in verse 26. 
This is a categorical, broad condemnation of all such activity. And then third objection, this is more modern, more recent even than the first two. Some have begun to argue that this passage does not account for a more enlightened understanding of love. Paul lived 2,000 years ago in a patriarchal society that was very rigid in its traditions and mores and values. And, and because Paul lived in that kind of society, Paul had to reflect by his writing that which would have resonated with his readers. But if, if people love each other, the argument goes, we need to understand that love is one of the big themes of scripture. And if two people love each other, it cannot be wrong. When you think about what the Old Testament says, for example, about homosexual behavior, the Bible is consistent all the way through. This is always, always, always sinful. Again, Genesis 19 verses one through 28, Sodom and Gomorrah, they were condemned in large part because of this practice. Not the only reason they were condemned. Leviticus 18 verse 22 and Leviticus 20 verse 13 and Deuteronomy 23 verses 17 through 18, the Bible described this kind of behavior as worthy and deserving of capital punishment under the old law. God said, put away people who practice this from among yourselves. And so as a Jew, Paul would have categorically rejected this as well. He grew up, he, had, he knew the old law, he knew what God said about these things, and there is nothing anywhere in the New Testament that says that somehow God's view on this particular practice, this particular behavior has changed. It's just not there. There's no way to justify this kind of lifestyle, this kind of behavior, biblically. Why talk about this? Why bring this up? Why single this out? One of the reasons to single it out is because this was such an abhorrent idea to a Jewish person in the first century. And Paul's answering his critics, his Jewish critics that said, why are you going and talking to those Gentiles, Paul? Don't you know how they behave? Don't you know what they're doing? And Paul is saying, I know exactly what's going on. These people need the gospel. I'm proclaiming the gospel to those that are Gentiles because some of them will turn. Some of them want to be saved. Some of them will reject this life and will reject this behavior and they'll honor God with their bodies once again if the gospel is proclaimed. And brothers and sisters and friends, we need to hear that message now as well. We are not predestined to live certain sexual lifestyles. We're not. The Bible says that we have been given a biological gender by God and God expects us, if we are going to be sexually active at all, God expects us to do that only exclusively within the confines of a biblically sanctioned marriage. That's it. There is no other valid sexual expression for any human being anywhere outside of a biblically sanctioned marriage, which is defined as one man marrying one woman and those two staying together as long as both of them are alive until death parts them. That's what the Bible teaches. And the gospel reminds us that anything outside of that is sin. And the gospel also reminds us of this. We can change, no matter who we are. Adulterer, fornicator, 
people that are involved in homosexuality, we can change to the glory of God. The gospel convinces us of that truth. By God's power, by God's grace, we can live differently and we can think differently by God's power, by God's grace. When people have begun to dishonor their bodies, what they need is not you know, counselors and therapy, what they need is the gospel of Jesus Christ more than anything else. That's why Paul preached and that's why we must preach today as well. I think we need as the church in the modern time in which we live, I think we need to recapture this idea. Not everybody wants to be saved, you know? Not everybody does, but some people do. Some people wanna know God and they wanna obey his word and they wanna do what's right. Some people do. Notice at the end of verse 27, the Bible speaks about them receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which was due. There's a lot of discussion about what that means, receiving the penalty. The idea though is probably this, that those who practice a homosexual lifestyle, homosexual, homosexuality itself is, it's, it's, it, there, there's a penalty involved in that. But not only that, looking forward to the final day, the day of God's wrath, the day of judgment. The wrath of God is revealed. That's how this passage begins in verse 18. And the wrath of God will be fully revealed against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness at the final day. First Thessalonians chapter one, verses nine and 10. Why do people need the gospel? Because people dishonor their bodies and they try to defend it and they try to argue that this is, this is who I am and this is what, what, what I, you know, why would God make me this way and then tell me, no, I can't, I can't do this. Either we submit to God and we obey his will or we don't. All of us. It's important for us to appreciate his word. And then fourth this evening, as you look at this passage and why people need the gospel, why go preach to people who are doing all of these things, Paul? Paul says, you know, some of the people I preach to are actually enthusiastic about evil. They're not just, they're not just doing evil things, but they're actually enjoying it. They're enthusiastic about it. And there's really a difference when you stop and think about it. Some people do evil, but they do it kind of in secret. They do it because they're embarrassed by it or they, you know, they enjoy what they're doing. Evil, there's joy in, in doing evil, in sin. They enjoy what they're doing, but they're kind of embarrassed about it or they don't want the consequences of everybody knowing. There are other people though, who just, they just do what's wicked, what's unrighteous, and they're enthusiastic about it. And that's what Paul's describing in verses 28 through 32. He says, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. God gave them over. By the way, notice three times in this passage, it says God gave them up, God gave them over. It says that in verse 24, verse 26, 28. It says that God gave these people over to what they wanted to do because God is angry about what they're doing. And sometimes, the way that God tries to get our attention is by allowing us to eat the bitter fruit of our decisions and allowing us to live with the bitter consequences of our choices. And so these people have become enthusiastic about evil and God has given them up to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And notice what he does in verses 29, 30, and 31. There is a list, a list of all kinds of sin. It's not as if he's just singling out homosexuality here. All kinds of things are wrong with people. I've kind of grouped them into three categories that I think might, you know, this doesn't encompass everything, but three things that might resonate with us. Some people are all about revenge. There are people around us that are just angry. They're just mad. 
Somebody wounded them, somebody hurt them, somebody did something that was unjust, that was unright, that was not right, and they are all about malice and envy and murder and strife. That's what they're all about, and that's the, that's the fruit that is, that is coming from their lives. That's the harvest that they can expect. But they are all about vengeance. Think about how many movies are being produced now about people that suffered tremendous losses and then go on vengeance, you know, vendettas, just, just constantly trying to pay back all the people that wronged them. There are people that live their lives that way. Then there are people that are all about freedom of self-expression. I gotta be me, I gotta do what I want to do. Haughty, boastful, disobedient to parents, disobedient to authority, all those things are mentioned here. Then you've got people that are having a passion for self-gratification. If I want it, if if I desire it, it must be okay for me to pursue that. So you've got words like covetousness and deceit and envy, those kinds of things. And what Paul writes is that the people that he's been preaching to, the Gentiles, they're living these kinds of lives. They're enthusiastic about doing evil. And the, you know, the cherry on top of all this, as you get down to the end of verse 32, is that not only do they practice these things, verse 32, but they actually endorse these things. They approve of those who do them. Now, the idea of approving is the idea that they would encourage you to do it too. So if you choose to live a rebellious, disobedient lifestyle, these people would say, you know, that's good. You, you be you. You follow your heart. You do what's right for you. you. Don't worry about what anybody else says. You've got to actualize what's going on in here. And you've got to, you've got to decide, look down deep in yourself and figure out who you are and then live that way. And they're encouraging and endorsing these wicked, sinful things. Mark it down, by the way. If you look at verses 28 through 32, I don't want to live in a society where that is the norm. I don't want to live in a neighborhood where that's the norm. But when we ask ourselves, I mean, that's where we all live. Because the things that you see in verses 28 through 32, people being enthusiastic about doing what is wicked and what's evil... That's where we live. It's not a happy place. The things that you, write, that you read about, these are offenses, most of them against other people. They're, they're destructive, they're damaging, they hurt other people. And somebody says, I wanna encourage you, go ahead and hurt other people if it gets you ahead, if it gets you what you want. The gospel tre- deals with how we treat God and how we treat others. And that's yet another reason why people need to hear the gospel. It reminds us that the way we treat others makes a difference. Paul, why are you going and preaching to those Gentiles? Why are you talking to them about salvation and about Christ and about the cross? Why are you telling them those things? Paul would say, because the wrath of God has been revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness and people are lost. And I want to help people know Jesus better. I want to help people know that there is hope and that they don't have to continue in this life and they don't have to continue doing things that are evil. I want people to know that. When Angie and I lived in Tanzania, we would have campaigners come over from the United States and, and they would be paired up sometimes with a translator and they'd go hand out tracts in the, in the cities and the streets. And, and there, were, there were people that lived in the streets. They, they, they were called street kids. Some of them eight, nine, ten years old. Some of them, most of them, teenagers. They were called street kids, and the street kids were usually addicted to some kind of drug. 
and the street kids didn't have a home. And a lot of times we would, as we were handing out tracts, you know, we would go over to the street kids and, you know, give them a tract too. And a lot of times the African translators, the people that live there in Africa, they would say, why are you doing that? Don't, don't give them tracts. You're just wasting it. And we would stop and we would, we would have this conversation. And I had this conversation with a number of people. What, what do you mean we're wasting it? They'll never read that. They're, they're not going to want what you've got to offer. And they were right in many cases. There were a lot of people that we would give tracts to that had no interest at all. But you see, here's the thing. When it comes to sharing the gospel with people, not everybody wants to be saved. I wish they did, but not everybody does. But some people do. And who are we to decide? Who are we to choose? Who are we to say, you know, that guy's living a lifestyle that I don't think he would ever respond. I don't think he would ever do what God expects him to do. If he's going to repent and turn to God and be a Christian, I'm, I'm not even going to try. Who are we to have that attitude? People need the gospel. People who are enthusiastic about evil need the gospel. And that's the main point of this passage. No matter how they are living their lives and no matter what you see them doing and when they're bowing down to all kinds of idols and they're suppressing the truth and they're turning their lives over to all kinds of wickedness, who are we to say, eh, I'm not going to bother sharing the gospel with them? As God's people, may it never be said of us that we shied away from sharing the good news with somebody just because we thought, eh, they're too far gone. They're like those street kids in Africa. They're not gonna, they're not gonna wanna hear what we've got to say. Let's not be guilty of that. Paul would say, far be it from us to hinder ourselves and hinder others from entering the kingdom of heaven by failing to proclaim God's word. Thanks for your kind attention to the lesson this evening. People need the gospel. You need the gospel this evening. If you're not a New Testament Christian, come to Jesus Christ know him, obey his word. The Bible says that when we become Christians, we do so by repenting of our sin and being baptized in water for the remission of our sins. That's how we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're ready to make that commitment this evening, there's no better time and no better place than right here and right now. Won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?